Thank you, Lucas, for that reading. I got texted this afternoon and asked uh, uh, if I have a, a verse that Lucas could read. And I, when I sent it over, I was like, yeah, he's going to be surprised by that one. Since, we only, since it was only two Sundays ago that we last were able to conduct one of these youth-led services, we did not uh, uh, try, to, try to make them develop lessons in that short period of time, so I will be the only speaker this evening, but we are honored to continue to have these young men lead. In fact, some of them, I believe, are doing uh, uh, worship assignments that they have not done before, and so it's a pleasure to always watch these young men grow and and use their talents and take on tasks that might be outside their comfort zone. If you will, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation, to that fourth chapter. Tonight we're going to spend some time there. It's a beautiful chapter, one of my favorites in the Bible. It's the chapter from which we get the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. And tonight I want to dive into this chapter with the time we have together. Next week, if you will join us again on Sunday evening, we will return to the One and Done series that we began a few weeks ago, that series that was covering the one-chapter books of the Bible. Next Sunday night, Craig will be preaching, and he'll be presenting the lone book that comes from the Old Testament. It's the book of Obadiah, so we encourage you to return for that series as well. Revelation is such an interesting book. It was written to Christians who were experiencing extraordinary persecution. At the time Revelation was written, the current Roman emperor, who I believe to be Domitian, had declared himself a deity. And to ensure that he was recognized as such and revered as such, a government agency was created. That government agency was called the Imperial Cult, and it went throughout the Roman Empire forcing Roman subjects to proclaim Caesar is Lord. And failure to make that proclamation, it could result in your imprisonment, or it could even result in your death. And while that was not a big deal for the average person, it prevented a huge dilemma for Christians. Christians who refused to identify anyone other than Jesus Christ as Lord were now faced with a difficult decision. Do you compromise your faith in order to protect your life? Or do you compromise your life in order to protect your faith? That's the decision Christians in the book of Revelation or Christians to whom the book of Revelation was written, were facing. And one of the key attributes of this book is that it is apocalyptic literature. That's its genre, and it's a very unique genre that was very popular from about 200 years before Jesus till about 200 years after Jesus. And one of the purposes of apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature was to encourage people who were enduring oppression. Apocalyptic literature was designed to have a message in it that would encourage those who were dealing with great difficulty. And the book of Revelation accomplishes that, particularly when we look at the fourth chapter of it. See, one of the ways apocalyptic literature encouraged people is by giving them a different vantage point giving them a different perspective, showing them an alternative reality. 
the reality for Christians in the first century was that Rome was in charge. And if you didn't want to die, you better do what Rome says. But Revelation offers a different perspective, a, a heavenly perspective. You see, in John's vision, the curtain is pulled back so those confined to this earthly reality could get a glimpse of what's happening in heaven and thereby be encouraged by a far greater reality. One preacher likened this to wells surfacing. Maybe you've had the opportunity to go well watching or at the very least have seen videos of wells surfacing. But wells spend most of their life under the water. That's where they are the most comfortable. That's where the environment is most conducive to them. That's where they are able to maneuver at their best and, and even to see at their best. And so most of their life is spent below the surface in an underwater reality. But if whales do not ascend occasionally and take a breath from a reality above the surface, they will not survive. Whales need to ascend and breathe in a different reality above the water than what they typically experience below the water so that they can live. And that's essentially what Revelation is doing for, for those persecuted Christians in the first century. It's giving them a breath of fresh air as they get to view, peer into this reality behind the curtain of heaven. Those first three chapters of Revelation include letters written by Jesus to various churches, sometimes commending them or encouraging them, but other times correcting them and warning them. And then you get to chapter 4, where everything changes. And when chapter 4, that curtain is pulled back for John to peer into the heavenly scene, and the first thing he saw was a throne with one seated on the throne. And that throne was the dominant feature in John's vision. Eleven times in eleven verses, John mentions the throne here in Revelation chapter 4. And the most important thing about this throne, I believe, other than the one who is seated on it, is the fact that all of the activities in heaven were described in relation to it. Skim through the fourth chapter of Revelation, and you'll see that the one that you'll see that the one who is the key fixture of heaven is seated on the throne. That around the throne was a rainbow. And around the throne were 24 other thrones. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, in front of the throne, were burning seven torches of fire. And there was a sea of glass before the throne. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures. And those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne. And the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And they cast their crowns before the throne. Everything that happens here in Revelation chapter 4 happens in relation to the throne. The whole chapter is about the throne 
and the one who sits on it. And I like the way one preacher summarized the importance of this throne room vision. He said, because God sits on the throne, the church will be able to stand whatever it's going through. In other words, this entire throne room scene is designed to show that everything is under the throne of God. And that was an important message for people who saw a man on a throne taking the lives of their brothers and sisters. And what I want to do right now is I want to unpack the importance of this, of this throne room scene by pointing out three things Revelation chapter 4 says falls under the jurisdiction of the throne of God. And the first of those is creation. All creation is under the throne. Notice the song that is repeatedly sung around the throne. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, we're told that day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What word gets repeated the most in that song? Holy. That was the preeminent thing being declared about the one who sits on the throne during that song, that he is holy. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart, to be differentiated, to be unique, to be not unlike something else. The one who is seated on the throne is declared to be holy, meaning he is not like anything else. And that is true of God, because everything else was created by Him. And I think that's why the four living creatures are present and emphasized in this passage. You have one with the head of a lion. A lion represents all of the wild animals. You have another with the head of an ox. An ox could represent all of the domesticated animals. And then there's one with the head of an eagle that could represent all of the flying creatures. And then, of course, there's the one with the head of a man, which represents mankind, the crown jewel of God's creation. And, and the presence of these creatures and, and, and the possible representations that they have seem to emphasize the fact that all created beings are inferior to the one who sits on the throne. Now, it's interesting because there are other thrones present in this throne room scene. We're told that the 24 elders, who, who I believe represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles combined, we're told that they sat on thrones around that central throne. And did you notice, though, what those 24 elders who have their little thrones, what they did when the four living creatures began to praise the one who sits on the throne. Those 24 elders, according to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10, they fell down before him who is seated on the throne and they cast their crowns before the throne. Their actions are a visible demonstration that they are not worthy to sit on the big throne that they're inferior to the one who sits on the big throne. 
And what's so fascinating about this throne room scene is that, as one preacher said, heaven never loses awe of the fact that God is creator. In fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, we're told that the 24 elders repeatedly said, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The very reason the one who sits on the throne deserves to be praised and glorified and honored is because he is the creator rather than the created. And here's the thing. Any time we get that confused, any time we transpose the created and the creator, we sin. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 23 that the root source of all sin is the placement of the created where the creator alone belongs. And Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that worship of the created is the root source of all emptiness and meaninglessness. Throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon said that he looked under the sun in, in, in this reality for meaning. He had all the money you could want, all the education you could want, all the influence you could want, all the sexual fulfillment you could want, and all the power and fame you could want, but he called it all meaningless or vanity because he recognized that he was going to die one day and leave everything he had to someone else who might not be as smart as he was. And so Solomon's conclusion was this, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He understood that true meaning could only be found in the creator rather than the created. There's a legend I heard about a, uh, a Danish king named Canute. According to the legend, Canute, who reigned over the North Sea Empire, which included Denmark, England, Norway, and parts of Sweden during the 11th century, he apparently got tired of his subjects praising every decision he made. He got tired of all the yes-men and all of the individuals who sought to gain influence and prominence with him by means of flattery. And so to stop their unnecessary praises, he moved his throne down to the beach one day. He sat down on his throne, and then he issued an order. He ordered the tide not to come in. But after a while, the water rose, and the sea began to lap over, his, the, over the legs of his throne. And that's when he stood up, looked at his court and all the individuals that had joined him. And he said, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. And then he took off his crown and placed it on a statue of Jesus and never wore it again. It's just a legend, but it's powerful. 
when you recognize who truly sits on the throne and he's the only one to whom creation obeys. This throne room scene in Revelation chapter 4 serves as a reminder that all of creation falls under the throne of God. And that's encouraging to a people who find themselves persecuted by their fellow creation. But creation is not the only thing that falls under the throne. We also find that history is under the throne as well. If you look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 9, we're told that the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The one on the throne is praised for being eternal. God's eternality is a difficult concept for our finite minds to wrap themselves around, but it is a defining characteristic of him. Do you remember Moses' introduction to God at the burning bush way back in Exodus chapter 3? You look at verse 13, Moses indirectly asked God for his name. He had declared that, what if, they, what if the Israelites ask me who you are? Who am I going to say? I, I don't know you that well. And God identified his name as I am. That name is built from a Hebrew, Hebrew verb, to be, thus rendering it, I am. For you and I, that name sounds like an incomplete sentence. If you're like me, I want an adjective on the end. I want a noun on the end. I want some sort of descriptor to fill in the blank after am so I can feel comfortable with a complete sentence. But God's naming of himself is intentional, even if it doesn't make complete sense to us. God chose that name because it indicates that he is the uncaused one. He is the self-existent one. And he is the eternal one. That name, which he shared with Moses, communicated the fact that he transcends time. And who else can you say that about? Who else can claim to be eternal? No one. You see, God's name isn't just a theological statement. It is, as one preacher said, a powerful rebuke of our allegiance to the kingdoms of men. Think about it this way. Many men have sat on a throne, but at some point in time, they all abandoned their thrones. It may be that they abandoned their throne because they lost it or they had to surrender it or they were no longer alive to possess it. At some point in time, every earthly throne is abandoned because no one who sits on those thrones is eternal. So it doesn't matter who the Pharaoh was, who the Caesar was, who the king was, who the czar was, or who the president is, there was a time when they weren't, and there will be a time when they won't be. But not God. God is the only one of whom it can be said he was, and he is, and he is to come. What's interesting is that Rome used to refer to itself as Roma Eternia, eternal Rome. 
But it's interesting because even people who were subjects of Rome at that time knew that history had shown that there was a time when Rome didn't exist. It wasn't eternal. And the powers that be in Rome, the emperor himself, had changed 12 different times by this point in history, which reminded everybody that that current emperor, who wanted to be identified and worshipped as a god, was going to die at some point in time. And so you have John repeating at least three times in the first four chapters of Revelation this phrase about God. He is the that God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. It's John's way of reminding the Christians that there's something about God that's different, that's better, that's unique, that's special. He's eternal. He transcends time and he transcends history. And though it can be difficult for our minds to grasp that eternality of God. It's important for us to try, because if we can wrap our minds around it, it could protect us from pride. As one preacher pointed out, the Bible says he was, he is, and he is to come. You weren't, you currently are, and before too long, you won't be. In other words, the world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around the one who is and who was and who is to come. If you can recognize that, if you can accept that, if you can believe that, it will keep you humble. But if we can wrap our minds around God's eternal quality, it could also protect us from despair. We're supposed to be a people who possess the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4. But we often worry about the future if the right law isn't passed, or the right person isn't elected, or the right war isn't won. And the message of Revelation is a message of hope and peace because the one who sits on the throne was before history and is above history. Therefore, he's going to get the last word, and it doesn't matter what happens down here because he's ultimately in control on his throne. The author of Hebrews asserts in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8 that your throne, O God, is forever and ever. No one else can claim that. And that means time and history are under the throne of God. And one last observation here from Revelation chapter 4 is that all evil is under the throne of God as well. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6 says that before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The comparison of the sea to glass indicates that it was stilled, it was calmed, it wasn't moving. That metaphor may not mean much to you and I other than the connection to Jesus calming the Sea of Galilee, but it would have mattered to those Jewish Christians who would have heard this message initially. In Jewish theology, the sea was associated with chaos and evil and darkness. You can see this in the creation account when it, where, where God's creative works, which are repeatedly identified as good in Genesis chapter 1, are set in contrast to that which preceded creation, which is described in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 as being without form, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
that deep connects with the sea. And darkness, the opposite of God, who is light. But you can also see this idea of uh, associating evil with the sea in the Psalms, in the wisdom and even prophetic literature of the Old Testament. Because the sea is described as a villain that God has to tame. You have Psalm chapter 89, verse 8 through 9, which says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And then in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 3, it is out of the sea from which Daniel saw four great beasts emerge in his vision. And these beasts represented the four great kingdoms that would oppressively reign over the earth. Then later in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, the beast, that, that metaphorical creature which represented the Roman Empire, is depicted as rising out of the sea. And the point is this. The sea throughout the Bible, and especially in Jewish theology, is always connected to evil and to these creatures and entities that are in opposition to God. And yet here, in this throne room scene, that sea is stilled. It's calm. And it indicates that the sea is no threat to the one who sits on the throne. And by the time we get to the end of John's vision, he'll tell us in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 that the sea was no more, indicating that God had conquered it. And the point is that in the end, God is going to deal with evil. And this is important because God is not the only one who has a throne in the book of Revelation. If you go back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, in the letter to the church in Pergamum, Jesus acknowledged that Satan has a throne. He says that Pergamum is a congregation that is where Satan's throne is. His throne is not in heaven like God's, but it is on this earth. That's why he's identified as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. And the ruler of this world in John chapter 12 and verse 31. And that's why we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. But the stealing of the sea and its ultimate elimination is God's way of telling us that evil will be eradicated. It will not get the last word. So when the presence of evil confounds you, when you're asking that question, why is there evil and suffering in this world? What Revelation chapter 4 says is that we should focus on the throne. Knowing that the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, as Psalm chapter 11, verse 3 and 4 declare. Because if we focus on the throne, it won't matter what's going on around us. You see, even evil is under the throne of God. Revelation 4 is here in this book to remind us that all creation, all history, and all evil are under the throne of God. To remind us that He reigns supreme and to remind us 
that he ultimately will have the last word. And that should change our perspective. I've heard about a documentary they did in the uh, mid-90s on the 50th anniversary of D-Day where they had the opportunity to interview a lot of the soldiers that were still alive and had participated in that invasion. And one of the veterans they interviewed was on one of the boats that was transported across the English Channel and stormed the beach. And he said, when I saw everything that was going on around me, I thought there's no way we could win. But they also interviewed a pilot who was in a plane that flew over that beach. And he said, looking down on what I saw, I, know, I knew there was no way we could lose. You see, it's all about perspective. And John's vision is intended to move our perspective off of the thrones of this earth and onto the throne that sits in heaven for all eternity. The ultimate lesson to be taken from Revelation chapter 4 is that in heaven, there's no question about who sits on the throne. And if God is on the throne, if God is seated on his throne, then we can stand whatever it is we face. Tonight, as we consider this passage, you might be going through a very difficult time. You might be struggling with something in this life, and you needed to be reminded that God's in control. Maybe you're battling your own sin struggling with the guilt and shame that come with sin. And you need to deal with that tonight. The one who sits on the throne has made arrangements through his son who he sent to die in our stead. Your sins can be forgiven if you'll put him on in baptism. Tonight we gather here acknowledging the one who sits on the throne and acknowledging that all things are under his throne. And if you need to surrender to that throne this evening, we invite you to come all together.